freed us from the power of sin. God, we uh, just confess, uh, as we sang earlier, that uh, every, every song and every praise, you're the one who's ultimately worthy of all of it. Um, God, all of our allegiance and um, our affection uh, is only due to you. Um, God, we uh, just come before you this morning um, hopeful and, and expectant, Lord. We know that nothing that we do this morning would be accomplished apart from the power of your word and your spirit. And, and so we ask you to do that, God. We ask that you would give us um, just soft hearts that are ready to receive what you have for us, that you would help us to believe it, um, God, because we need you for all of that. We pray all these things in your name. Amen. Good morning. Uh, we're going to be in Romans 3 this morning, beginning of Romans 3, verses 1 through 20. So go ahead and turn there with me if you would. I'll read starting in verse 1, and again we'll be going through verse 20. Paul writes this, he says, So what advantage does the Jew have? Or what is the benefit of circumcision? Considerable in every way. First, they were entrusted with the very words of God. What then, if some were unfaithful, will their unfaithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? Absolutely not. Let God be true, even though everyone is a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and triumph when you judge. But if our unrighteousness highlights God's righteousness, what are we to say? I'm using a human argument. Is God unrighteous to inflict wrath? Absolutely not. Otherwise, how will God judge the world? But if by my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I also still being judged as a sinner? And why not say, just as some people slanderously claim that we say, let us do what is evil so that good may come. Their condemnation is deserved. What then? Are we any better off? Not at all, for we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous. Not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. All alike have become worthless. There is no one who does what is good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They deceive with their tongue. Vipers' venom is under their lips. Their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and wretchedness are in their paths. In the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes." Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are subject to the law, so that every mouth may be shut, and the whole world may become subject to God's judgment. For no one will be justified in his sight by the works of the law, because the knowledge of sin comes through the law. Uh, Richard Sibbs has a quote from his book called The Bruised Reed. I think it's on the, it's good on the screen there for you behind me. Uh, it goes like this. He writes... God sees fit <laughs> that we should taste of that cup of which his son drank so deep. That we might feel just a little what sin is and what his son's love was. His logic here in saying this is simply that you won't have any appreciation for Christ and his love for you until you first have a recognition and repulsion over the bitterness of your own sin. In a very similar vein, Thomas Watson said, Till sin be bitter, Christ will not be sweet. 
you can't appreciate the sweetness of Christ until you first have the bitter taste of sin in your mouth. God intends that you would experience them in this order. He does this in a number of ways, not at all uh, limited to before your conversion, although we did have to recognize this in order to first come to him in faith. Unfortunately, we too often forget the bitterness of our sin. And the Lord, in his loving kindness towards us, intends for us to be reminded of it. Not so that we can wallow in guilt and shame, but that we can once again appreciate the sweetness of Christ and his love for us. And he does this in a number of ways, one of which I think may be the most painful and difficult at times. He'll bring suffering into our lives that there, there doesn't seem to be any explanation for, right? Uh, we can't draw a straight line from anything that we've done to the painful reality or circumstances that we're now living in. But when we really understand what's, what's happening, it still ends up serving as a reminder of the general problem of sin in the world. Everything that is not as it should be here and now is ultimately because of sin. And these painful experiences, they remind us of that, not, again, so that we would be driven to hopelessness, but so that we would once again long for and trust in the person and work of Christ. A second way that the Lord often does this is by correctively disciplining us over our sin. In these situations, there's, there's no questioning why what's happening is happening, right? We can draw a, a direct line, a straight line between something sinful that we've done and the consequences that we're now living in. But even this, if understood properly, it's not intended as the Lord's judgment over us, but once again, to remind us of Christ and his beauty, what he accomplished for us, and to bring us back to the gospel in faith. But friends, what I want to suggest this morning is a, is a third way that the Lord does this that I think we often take for granted. There's a third way that the Lord intends to have us, again, taste the bitterness of sin, and that's through the truth of his word. It's through the truth found in his word that, that confronts the blindness in our hearts and our our fragile opinions about ourselves, and it presents us with, with the truth as hard and as harsh as it may be. It doesn't sugarcoat anything. It puts it in the most straightforward terms, and it presents us with a picture of ourselves that is far more wicked than we would ever conclude on our own. And in so doing, it gives us just a little drink of the depth of our sin that Christ took to the cross with him, and it tastes bitter. And friends, I just don't want us to miss this as Paul's intent for us this morning in Romans 3. I don't want us to read through these chapters in Romans and miss Paul's intent, miss the Lord's loving intention for us and how he just hammers and hammers and hammers home the truth about the sinfulness of humanity. I don't want us now, after the end of Romans 1 and all of Romans 2 and now into Romans 3, to, to somehow grow numb to what the Bible says about the problem of sin in the world and the shocking fact that we are all just as much a part of the problem as anyone else. Because as soon as we let that happen, as soon as we, as we lose that sense of our sin, as soon as we forget that taste in our mouths, that, that cup that Christ drank so deeply for us, we forget the sweetness of Christ and the gospel. We forget how beautiful Christ and his gospel really is. And so this morning, we want to let the Bible do that very thing. 
We want to let it speak to the reality about ourselves, as, as hard and as shocking as it may be to hear, but we also want to be very clear from the onset that the only purpose that God has for us in that is so that we would be able to taste and see the beauty of the gospel and be moved to hope in that rather than ourselves. Amen? Because the Bible does both, and we intend to see it do both this morning, again, all through the testimony of the Word. And as we move into our text this morning, I think we'll see Paul do this uh, in kind of four main points that we're going to highlight in the text. The first point we want to see Paul make here is that among many advantages to being Jew, the highest of all of them was that they were entrusted with the Holy Scriptures. That's the first point. Israel was entrusted with the Holy Scriptures. You remember in chapter 2, uh, Paul has been, he's been doing a lot of work to kind of tear down any notion of belief that salvation was in any way going to come through ethnic Judaism, right? Uh, it's something he's not done tearing down. He's going to continue coming back to it and alluding to that throughout the letter. But he's just made this very, very pointed argument and statement at the end of chapter 2 that essentially the circumcision of the Israelites has become uncircumcision, because of their inability to keep the law perfectly. Because true circumcision is not outward circumcision of the flesh, it's the circumcision of the heart that comes by faith. That's true salvation, and it's available to everyone, not just the Jews. And so, now in light of this, Paul raises this question here in verse 1, and the question is, well, if all of that's true, right, if everything he's just said is true, then what advantage does the Jew really have? What advantage is there to being a Jew, or what is the benefit of circumcision? He says in verse 2, essentially asking the same question in a different way, because, again, the natural kind of flow of thought would be, well, there, there isn't really one. Being a Jew isn't what gets you saved, and the circumcision of the flesh essentially becomes uncircumcision in God's economy of salvation. And so what point is there to being a Jew in the first place? That's not what Paul says. He says, on the contrary considerable in every way. In other words, there are, there are many advantages to being a Jew. You may just have misunderstood what they were. But then he only lists one. He, he, the only one that he mentions here is that they've been, they've been entrusted with the spoken words of God. They've been entrusted with God's word. And the fact that he only mentions this particular advantage is meant to highlight the superiority of this advantage over all the rest, Right? Uh, it, the Jews have lots of benefits. It, Paul lists them later at the beginning of Romans 9, but the point here in Romans 3 is that none quite compare to the fact that Israel has been the people that have been entrusted with God's word all this time. If we read over this too quickly, I think we can kind of miss the depth and significance of what he's saying here because it, it's not in any way disconnected from how he's already been talking about the nature of the Scriptures. What has he already said about these holy Scriptures that Israel has been entrusted with? That they were written by the prophets long ago and that they contain the message of the Gospel. Romans 1, verses 1 and 2. And what is that Gospel about? It's about his son, Romans 1, verse 3. And what has Paul been called to do with that Gospel? Well, he's been called to preach it, to bring about the faith of all the nations, Romans 1, verses 5 and 15. And how does that gospel bring about the obedience of faith? Because it's that gospel message itself, again, found in the scriptures, that is God's power for salvation. Romans 1, verse 16. And this is the primary advantage to being a Jew. God's, God's entire plan for salvation is intricately connected to the witness and power of the gospel 
as it's presented to us in his word. And not only was Israel the conduit by which God brings that to us, they're the ones who have had it all along. Some of you may be sitting here wondering, well, doesn't he, doesn't he realize this would just be talking about the Old Testament, right? And doesn't he know that the Old Testament, it really, it really is not as clear about all these things Paul's talking about as the New Testament is. Yes, I, I realize this is referring to the Old Testament here, and my press would be this, don't fall into the same trap that the unbelieving Jews in the first century, or for centuries before that as well for that matter, fell into with the way they understood the Scriptures. Israel has not, let me say it again, has not been living with a veiled or, or less clear message of salvation up until this point. And Paul is not, is not now giving them the clear message of the gospel for the very first time. Let me just let that sit for a moment. The saving message of the gospel, God's power for salvation, is not first mentioned in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. Friends, the way Paul understands the scriptures is that the entire Old Testament can say, contains the same saving power of the gospel. It's a Christian book. It's one, it's one overarching message about the Messiah, the Son of God, that salvation comes by faith, that it's for all the nations, not just Israel. And, and the overwhelming thrust of all of it is, is to hope in him and what we, he will accomplish because it's the only way that you can be saved. And Israel's the ones who, who, who have had it, but they've misunderstood it like, like I think we very easily and often do. So much of what Paul is tearing down here uh, in these first few chapters of Romans It's not just an inconsistency with their correct understanding of Scripture and how they're living in light of it. Sure, that might be some of it, but friends, at the heart of everything he's doing, it's really really addressing a misunderstanding of the Scriptures itself. So many Jews have wrongly understood it to be a book about laws, not about faith. They've wrongly understood it to be about their own faithfulness and righteousness, not a hope in the faithfulness and righteousness of Christ. They've wrongly understood it to be a book that just, that just retells their history and not a book about God's redemptive plan and how since the very first words in the beginning, he's moving all of history towards one climactic event of restoration. They've wrongly understood it to be about God's political plan for Israel and not God's plan to save all the nations through faith. And so, friends, my press this morning would simply be this. Don't read your Bibles and have the same misunderstandings. Romans isn't going to make any sense to you if you don't see how all of the Bible preaches the gospel. And if you're reading your Old Testament Bible and you think that it's, it's primarily about any of those things, if you think you're just reading a history book about Israel, a book that's mainly about the need to keep the law and what the consequences are if you don't do that, friends, if that's all you're getting out of the Bible, you're doing it wrong. <laughs> I don't know how else to say it, just straight up. That's not it. And I wonder if, if part of our bend at times towards um, law-keeping and, and rules and earning favor isn't grounded in part by the fact that we think that's what the majority of the Bible is about. Is a book about, about keeping the law and not, not an entire book pointing us to the one who's going to keep it for us and pay for sin in our place. Yes, it, it starts with our sinful hearts and our, our kind of bend towards our own glory and our capacity to achieve. We have a deep-rooted heart problem that's bent towards ourselves. The Bible is clear about that. But can I also just say, I think a lot of times we have a reading problem as well. We have a reading problem. We want to talk about 
the Old Testament and God's scriptures as if it's not clear about these things. But, but again, Paul's theology of the Bible here in the first few chapters of Romans is overwhelmingly that all the things he's saying about salvation and the people of God, their depravity and hopelessness, God's righteousness, the work of his son, and how, how you can be saved by faith in the Messiah, it's all been written about and developed and clearly anticipated by the Old Testament. And don't miss this, because th- this is the point to get here in Romans 3. It's precisely because all of it is already there in, in what we know as the Old Testament that Israel has had all this time. It's precisely that, that the Old Testament testifies to all of these things clearly that Paul says, not only are there so many advantages to being Jewish, this is by far the greatest of them all. They had the Scriptures. They had the Bible and its overwhelming message about how you can be saved from the judgment of God by faith in his son. Not by circumcision of the flesh, but by circumcision of the heart. Not by the letter of the law, but by the spirit. Uh, But the fact that that testimony is there, that the gospel is there in the Old Testament, it wouldn't be worth anything if it weren't true. Because as sinful human beings, our, our hearts and our minds and, and our own rationale, they often contradict the truth that the Bible communicates. And that's the very next point that Paul's going to make here. Second point I want to highlight is simply that the testimony of the Bible about who we are and how God saves is true. It doesn't matter if you object to it, it doesn't matter if you disagree, and it doesn't matter if you don't like it. In verse 4, he says, let God be true, even though everyone is a liar, as it is written that you may be justified in your words. I'm just seeing how the primary advantage that the Jews had was that they had the words of God. And now we see an emphasis on the truth of that word above all else. And the truth of that word is grounded in the nature and character of God himself. We could illustrate it like this. Uh, Say two friends, we'll call them Jimmy and Johnny, uh, they, both go, they both go fishing, okay? Not together, they both go on their own separate places. Um, and, and after a few hours, they, they get back together that night, uh, meet up to report back to each other on, on how they did, how it went. So Jimmy asked Johnny, well, hey, you know, how'd it go? How'd fishing go for you? Johnny says, oh, it went, it went real good. I caught a fish this big. Now, I'm not, I, you guys know me a little bit, I think, by now. I'm not a big fisherman or anything, but that's, that's a pretty good-sized fish, right? That's a good-sized fish, I would say. And Jimmy says, uh, I don't, whatever you say when your friend catches a big fish, I don't know. Nice catch, man. Uh, Johnny says, yeah, it was, it was good. Well, what about you? How'd it go for you? Jimmy says, oh, it, it went real good. I caught a fish this big. <laughs> it's a little bit bigger than Johnny's. Johnny's friendly envy and anger immediately begins to swell up. He thought for sure that he'd have the bigger fish, and he can't believe Jimmy beats him. So he says, no way. No, no way, no chance you actually caught a bigger fish than me. But Jimmy insists. He says, yes, I did. I'm, I'm telling you, I measured it. We got the tape out and everything. It was this big. It really was. Johnny says, no, you did not. And Jimmy says, yes, I did. In fact, in fact, you can ask Jeffrey. He was there too. Johnny's still not buying it, though. Jeffrey's not the you know, sharpest tool in the shed. After all, he doesn't remember things exactly how they went. So he's not buying it. Jimmy's still trying to convince him. He says, well, you can ask Jeremy too because, because he was also there and he'll tell you. But Johnny, he just ain't having it. He says, I've fished in that pond so many times. I've never seen a fish even, even half that big in that pond. I do not 
believe you. And so Jimmy, now exacerbated by this situation, with all the, all the uh, desperation in his voice that he can muster up, he goes to the one extreme that he can possibly think of to convince his friend that he really did catch this fish. He looks Johnny straight in the eye and he says, I swear. <laughs> now what's he doing in that moment? What he's doing is he's saying, okay, you won't, you won't take me at my word. You won't believe my friend's word. Fine, I'm going to put the one thing on this that is more important and more valuable than anything else I can think of, my very character. Because what I'm saying is so true and you're having such a hard time believing it that I'm going to put my very character on it so that you're forced with this ultimatum. If you don't believe my word on this, you say something about the very essence of who I am. The two don't get to be disconnected. If you don't believe me, you make a statement about who I am and the type of person I am. And friends, God's word does the exact same thing. You don't get to separate God from his word. (laughs) You don't get to separate the character of God from the word of God. No, God, God speaks his word and he does the same exact thing little Jimmy did. He says, I swear by it. He says, my word is not up for debate and it's not up for argument because what's on the line with my word is my very character. It's the essence of who I am. And in the midst of these objections in the text where Paul, Paul raises these questions about how two seemingly opposing ideas can both be true in our minds, his starting point is the non-negotiable truth that God's word, of God's word and what it says about the way that he saves sinners. His starting point, before he explains anything, is that it doesn't matter if you disagree with God's word or how many of you disagree with God's word or if it doesn't make sense to you or if you just don't like it, like it let God's word be true. <laughs> because the moment God's word ceases to be true, God ceases to be God. This will be important to have in mind all throughout the book of Romans, quite honestly, as we weed through many difficult topics, but it's it's especially relevant for us this morning in verses 3 day because, uh, again, the Jews under the law, kind of who he's talking to, they, they disagree with him and what he's been saying. And they disagree on two fronts with these two kind of objections to the truth that Paul's been preaching. And you'll notice that, that what's at stake in their objections are two aspects of God's character. They object to two aspects of God's character, namely his faithfulness and his righteousness. The first objection that's raised here is against his faithfulness in verse 3, and it's essentially this, if, God, uh, if Israel is unfaithful, namely to the law, is God's faithfulness nullified? Does he cease or fail to be faithful to his promises if that's the case? Again, this is on the heels of, of Paul um, explaining how even, even Israel, who has had the law all this time, who may even uh, keep the letter of the law, fails to fulfill the heart and the purpose of the law. And so if that's true, well then, is God unfaithful to his promises to them? Because you remember part of the story of Israel in the Old Testament is that uh, God takes them out of exile and he brings them into the promised land that he had promised them, but then they get sent back into exile because they fail to keep God's commands. And, And the issue with that is that what's at stake with Israel being taken out of the land that God promised them. It's not ultimately the well-being of Israel, but rather it's the, it's the integrity of God's name as the faithful, uh, promise-keeping God of Israel. The tension in, in that part of the story is how can God be faithful to keep his promises to his people if, if that's contingent upon their faithfulness to him and they can't keep his commands? 
And the answer the Bible gives us, in part, again, of that, that message and hope that the Old Testament develops is that God's going gonna, gonna to send his spirit to circumcise not the flesh, but the heart. He's going to give them a new heart and put his spirit in them and cause them to follow him in that sense. This is how their deliverance and salvation, it's going to be made secure. That's the promise of the spirit that we receive when we come to faith in him. And that's exactly where Paul went at the, Roman, at the end of Romans 2. It, the true circumcision is one of the heart done by the Spirit. But again, what's at stake with all of this is what? Well, it's, it's, God's, it's God's name being upheld. It's his character being upheld. It's the truth of his word to his people. And as we come into Romans 3 now, this is the very objection that's raised against him. If God's people, Israel, are unfaithful, does he cease to be faithful? If the unfaithfulness of God's people caused him to bring them out of the land that he promised them, does he cease to be faithful? And Paul's immediate answer is absolutely not. God's word is absolutely true because it's rooted in his character. But then what's he do? He gives us an example. He takes us to David and the famous text where David speaks about his unfaithfulness. What better place to look to see if God can be found faithful to an unfaithful Israelite than to look at David. Turn with me to Psalm 51. Uh, This quotation in verse 4 of Romans 3 is a quotation of verse 4 in Psalm 51. And it's what Paul leans on with this answer of, uh, no, of course, the Lord is not unfaithful if Israel is unfaithful. God can still be faithful in the unfaithfulness of his people, and he is. When we back up to uh, Psalm 51 and we look at these first few verses here, uh, we'll see that David, David is confessing his sin, that he's sinned before God, that he's, he's, he's conscious of it, that first and foremost he's sinned against God. Now, mind you, uh, this is a man who has committed adultery. Um, many believe that that adulter- adulterous act was, uh, was forced on Bathsheba, but at the very least I think we could say easily that he has used his position and his power to make it happen and murder that's a big three right there. That's, that's, that's quite the trifecta. And it's the very context of him bringing all of those things up before the Lord that he writes the word that Paul quotes, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless when you pass sentence. And so the question is, how do we understand the, the relationship between these two things that are happening? How do we, how do we understand the relationship between uh, David's sin being brought up and the Lord being justified in his words? And I think that what we have to understand in Psalm 51 is that God's words are justified in verse 4 by David's confession, David's confession of his sin and his hope in the faithfulness of God to save him. In Psalm 51, what we see, what we see happening is David, he's confessing his utter, utter sinfulness before God, but then hoping in the righteousness of God. And it's in that sense that God's words are justified. If I can make it more plain, God's, God's words that are justified, that David says, and proven to be true in Psalm 51.4, it's the testimony of his word about how he's going to save his people, which we know is by faith. But in order to first come to saving faith in Christ, what do you, what do you have to recognize and believe about yourself? That you're a sinner in need of saving. 
in order to trust him for everything, for salvation, you, you first have to cease to trust in yourself or your own ability. You, you have to recognize the truth about yourself that you, that you aren't faithful to God's law and that you can't keep his standard. And when you recognize that fact about yourself, you put all of your hope and trust in him. And that's exactly what Psalm 51 shows David doing. He, he, is, he is so aware of his sin here. He's conscious of it. He's tasted the cup of sin. He's got the bitter taste in his mouth. He, he gets it, and he's confessing his sin to God. And then as we keep reading the psalm, what do we see him do? He's singing the praises of God's faithfulness to him to save him despite his sin and because of his faith. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your, your steadfast love. Blot out my transgressions. Clean me from my iniquity, for my sin is ever before me. Later in verse 10, give me a new heart, O Lord. Verse 14, deliver me from my guilt, O Lord, and I will sing the praise of your righteousness. So, so can God be faithful if his people are unfaithful? Yes. In fact, God is not, God is not saving faithful people because there are none. He's only saving unfaithful people because that's all that there is. And he's saving unfaithful people who trust not in their own righteousness, but in the righteousness of God. And this is how God is faithful to unfaithful people. It's, it's him saving sinners, not by their faithfulness to him, but by their faith in him in response to their sin. But then the second objection is this. Well, okay, if, if, if that's true, if we're going to take that, that God is still righteous in our unrighteousness, then how can we be found at fault if we're unrighteous? This is in verses 5 to 7. Again, it's an assault on the truth of God's word, what, what God's word clearly states. And here they're, they're twisting the truth about God's righteousness, and they're, and they're trying to get themselves off the hook in a sense. Uh, the logic is essentially if, God's, if God's, God's righteousness, his salvation of sinners, is dependent on my unrighteousness, well, then how can I be judged by him for my unrighteousness? If we're saying that God's righteousness is revealed not in his saving of faithful and righteous people, but rather that he saves unrighteous people by their faith, then God's righteousness must be contingent upon our unrighteousness. Are you following this? And if God needs our unrighteousness to demonstrate his righteousness, then how can we be found at fault? Uh, but, but, it, but it misses two steps here that Paul is trying to, to, to hammer home from Psalm 51. The confession of sin and, and the hope of God to save sinners. Friends, God, God does not just let wicked men off the hook. <laughs> that is not his righteousness. His righteousness is explicitly revealed in their faith in the gospel message. And that gospel message includes a punishment for sin. That's the very next part of Romans 3. God's, God's righteousness is revealed through Christ's death on the cross on our behalf. And so the gospel message, it, it 100% includes a punishment for every single sin that, that ever has occurred and will occur in, in all space, time, and history. Only the message is that it's not all going to be placed on the people responsible for it. Someone is going to drink the entire cup of sin, but it doesn't have to be you and it doesn't have to be me. The gospel message all along has been the, the anticipation of a Messiah, the Son of God, who comes and he, he bears the iniquity of all of us. He drinks the entire cup of sin for us. And those who reject him, they will perish in their rebellion. But those who 
kiss the son, as the psalmist puts it in Psalm 2, those who come to him by faith in his word, they'll be happy and blessed forever. Friends, this is what, this is what the entire Bible has been screaming about. It's why the Jews have their, their greatest advantage of all is that they've had the Bible. They've had the Bible because it tain, contains this very message that God, he's not unfaithful to you to save you if you're unfaithful because he doesn't come to save faithful and righteous people. There are none of those. He comes to save sinners by faith. And in order to receive the righteousness of God by faith, you first have to recognize that you're a sinner. Because until sin is bitter, Christ will not be sweet. This leads directly into the third point that he, the text makes, which is that the testimony that the Bible gives us about humanity is that everyone is under the power of sin. If the testimony of the word is true, and this is the greatest advantage that Israel has had all along, they've, they've had the true word of God, well then what does that word say about them? Paul's been very clear and explicit about the, the condition of the Gentiles who are, who are not under the law and, and kind of that second half of uh, Romans 1. Uh, just complete debauchery and, and rebellion against God. It's humanity on its own is kind of the picture without God and without even the, the kind of restraint that the law would have over them. And as Paul sort of measures them up against the standard of God's righteousness, uh, it was very, very, uh, very clear that they didn't meet that standard, right? Uh, but then as we, as we start to get into chapter 2 and into chapter 3, he's now sort of shifted the attention to everybody else, including the Jews, who now they talk about their own condition as people who have, who have had God's word. They've had his revelation, and they have had that restraining power of the law over them, and he's now essentially doing the exact same thing. He's measuring them now against the exact same standard, standard God's righteousness, and, and the question is the same, do they measure up? Um, you may remember in the movie uh, Hoosiers, uh, it's a story about a high school basketball team in this tiny little town in Indiana, um, and they, they make it to the state finals, and there's this scene <clears throat> uh, near the end as they're, as they're uh, going, going to the state finals where the team, they walk into the gymnasium that they're going to play in, and it, it's huge, right? It's absolutely huge. They're used to this um, kind of, you know, small town setting, small little gym in their, in their small little hometown, and they walk into this, this huge, massive arena with thousands of seats and all these lights, and you can, you can just kind of see, like, the, the wow factor on their faces, right, as they walk in for the first time and, and take it all in. Um, the coach, uh, as, they're, as they're doing this, the coach, he pulls out a tape measure, and he has one of his players... Um, hold it down to the floor underneath the basket. And, and he walks it out to the free throw line, and then he asks his players, well, how long is it? 15 feet, he says. He tells another player to get on that guy's shoulders, and then he holds the tape measure down to the floor underneath the hoop. He has the, he has the player measure from the front of the rim to see how high the hoop is, and he asks him, now, what does it say? How does it measure? 10 feet, he says. And then he just gives this line and leaves it there. He says, I think you'll find it's the exact same measurements as our gym back in Hickory. What he's saying to his team in that moment is that 
as, as you walk into this big gym with all these, all these crazy lights and all these, all these seats where all these people are going to be, when it really gets down to it, this gym floor is no different than any other gym floor anywhere. It's 15 feet to the free throw line. It's 10 feet up to the hoop. The same measurements and standards apply to this gym, the same as any other gym. And Paul, after he's stripped Israel down of all the extra things that they think they bring before God, right? Their, their, their status, their, their circumcision, their law-keeping. He says this to, him, to them. The standards that apply to the Gentiles, they apply to you the exact same. The same requirement that's required of them is required of you too because it's rooted in the unchanging character of God. And so how do you measure up? This is the question he asks of them. Well, well, what about us, the Jews? What's the final verdict on us? Are we any better off? And he says in verse 9, no, no, we're not. We've already charged that, that both Jews and Gentiles are all under the power and dominion of sin. After Paul takes everything else away, he, he holds them up to the measuring stick of God's holy and righteous character and his perfect standard. He, he looks at the measuring tape and he says, it's 15 feet to the free throw line, it's 10 feet to the hoop. You're all the same. The outworking of your sin may look different, but, but you're all equally under the power of the sin and, and the law does not fix that problem for you. And then this familiar line, as it is written, followed, uh, followed by a set of citations, from the Old Testament. Once again, uh, Paul's, Paul's evidence and his support for everything that he's saying is the Old Testament. It's the Bible's own witness to the realities of life that he's talking about. Um, most of these citations, they're from the Psalms with the one in verse 19 being out of Isaiah. Uh, we, we don't have time to go look at all of them, but let's make, I, I think we could make just two observations quickly about kind of this, this string of verses here that we see um, the first thing we should notice is this, is that the entire existence of mankind is affected by the problem of sin. Uh, Paul, Paul doesn't want you to just come away from this thinking that you're, you're just a little sinful, right? He, he wants you to recognize that you're all the way sinful. Every fiber of your being is born in sin and, and in rebellion against God. You'll notice how he kind of works his way uh, from, from the, the mind and the will to the body, and, and it's all the way from head to toe, right? Uh, there's nobody who understands God. There's nobody who seeks after him. All have turned away. It's their throat and their tongue and, and lips in verse 19. It's their mouth in verse 14, their feet verse uh, 15, and their eyes in verse 18. Uh, friends, I, I know that we've been, we've been kind of hammering the, this the last few weeks. Uh, we don't just have a little problem with sin. <laughs> we have a really big problem with sin. And, and before we come to Christ in faith to be freed from that power of sin and to be transformed into a new creation in Christ, this is what we are before the Lord. There's not, there's not a single part of us that works in allegiance to him. There's not a single part of us that, that seeks him out, that wants to glorify him. We are in absolute rebellion against him, down to the very core, every fiber of our being. And we see this sinful orientation directed in two ways. It's directed towards God and towards other people. That's the second thing we should observe from this 
this, uh, th- this kind of string of texts is how our sinfulness, it's directed two ways. Towards God and towards other people. Uh, towards God, verses 11 and 12, they don't, they don't seek after him, they don't understand him, they all turn away from him. Verse 18, there's no fear of him in their eyes. And, and towards others, they deceive other people with their words, they lead people to the grave with their deception, their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. They shed blood and bring destruction in their path. It's not, it's not surprising at all that our sinfulness would be described in these ways. Uh, these are the two main orientations of God's law and his holy character on display. It's what the new covenant came to accomplish is a new heart that would love God and love other people. <laughs> but again, Paul's, Paul's overarching point that he's, that he's trying to make here is that nobody, nobody, nobody is righteous before him. That's the overarching claim Paul's making with this verse 10, plain as day. There is no one righteous. No, not one. Nobody, nobody measures up to the standard. We all fall short of what's required. There's not, there's not a single Gentile who's righteous. There's not a single Jew who's righteous before him. There's not a single person in their own right who will stand before a holy and righteous God and be counted as righteous before him in and of themselves. And I just want to, I want to stop and I want to sit here for a moment. And I want us to ask ourselves, do we get it? (laughs) Do we really, do we really get this? Do we believe it for ourselves? Do we believe that we're, that we're really sinners? Not just hypothetical I'll say I'm a sinner, but, but real sinners. And, and not just sinners with a little problem with sin, sinners with the same sin problem that everyone else has. And, and are we willing to be seen that way before God and before other people? Are we willing to, to, to let it be true of us in the eyes of those around us? The great, the great danger for us in this room this morning, believer, unbeliever, all of us in different ways, is that we, we would fail to really recognize the truth about ourselves apart from grace. And in so doing, we'd fail to really recognize the truth about what Christ did for us and why he had to do it. That's what's really at stake here. This isn't, this isn't just the Lord wanting to to beat us over the head about our sin and us needing to let him do it because we deserve it. It's that we would fail to really appreciate and treasure the free gift of salvation and grace that's available to us. And friends, it's not, it's not even just all about, about us and, and me as an individual either. Uh, it's about all of those around us. Because when we refuse to be seen as real sinners in our own eyes or in the eyes of other people, we, we, we fail to communicate and display the real truth of the gospel. We fail to demonstrate to our community the truth of the gospel, that we, that we really are broken sinners in need of a Savior, and that we need His grace every single moment. We fail to demonstrate to our children that mommy and daddy are nothing more than broken sinners of need, in need of God's grace and forgiveness. We fail to demonstrate to our friends and our friendships that we're, that we're still broken and sinful people who need God's grace abundantly. 
We fail to demonstrate to each other as brothers and sisters in Christ and in the same church that the gospel is true <laughs> in the way that we rightly understand and confess our sin and, and, and just lean on the promises of God to sustain us. And friends, not only do we, just, do we just fail to preach the truth of our gospel in our lives, but, but because of our own pride and our own self-capacity and our own, our own self-righteousness, we actually preach exactly against it. Because, because what we communicate, again, with our lives, maybe not our lips, but our lives, when we're unwilling to be seen as sinners, is that Christ isn't really needed. He's not needed. The sweetness of Jesus Christ, it becomes, it becomes dull to us because the bitterness of our sin has become lost on us. And, and as a result, the message that we preach and the way that we, that we think and we speak and we live in all these contexts, the way that we relate to one another, is not that my life is lived by grace alone through faith alone. It's that Jesus Christ really is not all that important to me. He may have been needed in a, in a saving moment, but day by day, moment by moment, I'm good. <laughs> I can do this on my own. And friends, what God intends to do this morning through, through this, this piercing truth of his word is to, is to just cut through all of that so that we could, we could see ourselves for who we are. And then we would just come to him, not in self-confidence, but in absolute faith and dependence on him. Because it's only then does Christ have anything to offer you. Again, the text, as much as it's intent on, on presenting us with this, this shocking reality that we're, we're far more wicked and sinful than we could ever imagine, it never intends to just leave us there. Amen? That's our last point. The, the text will, on one hand, it will, it will on one hand tell you that you're, you're no different than the debauchery in Romans 1, and it will have you take a sip of that cup and, and, and taste the bitterness of your sin, but it never intends to just have you keep drinking it. And, and the hope of the Bible is that you would, you would recognize your sin, that you would recognize that you, you don't deserve a relationship with God because you're, you're unable to be faithful to him, but then you wouldn't just sit in hopelessness, rather that you would come to him. This is the great invitation of the gospel, and it's the, it's the whole reason why the Bible has to, has to cut you and beat you up a little bit so that you would realize that all you have to do and all you can do is just come to Jesus so that you would stop in all your vain pursuits of your own glory and your own righteousness, that you would stop being obsessed with your, your morality and your people-pleasing and your own power to keep the rules so that you would stop worrying about the opinions of others and hiding the real you behind some fake presentation of yourself. God gives us the piercing truth of his word that cuts through all of that so that we would just see ourselves for who we really are and so that we would just come to him in faith. Or maybe this, maybe you're, maybe you're not someone this morning who struggles to see and understand the weight of their sin. Maybe you're, you're someone like David who, who this morning came to church uh, ever aware of their sin. Maybe that's all you can help but feel is the magnitude of your sin. Maybe you're, you're, you're discouraged and you're tired of the, the same old, same fight with sin. You feel defeated by it. Maybe you've been a Christian for a really long time, but you still got to a place with sin that you never thought you'd get to, and you can't 
understand how it could happen. You don't know where to go. Maybe you're looking around this room and you feel like your, your resume to sin matches up way closer to David than anyone around you. Maybe you're, you're tasting the taste of sin and you can't get it out of your mouth. And to you, I'd say the exact same thing. Just come to him. Because these are the exact kinds of people that the gospel is for. And it's the exact kind of person that Jesus came for. In Matthew 9, Matthew... He writes about this encounter that Jesus had with the Pharisees. It says, while he, Jesus, was reclining at the table in the house, many tax collectors and sinners came to to eat with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Now when he heard this, he said, it is not those who are well who need a doctor, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. Friends, Jesus Christ is nothing to you if you're not a sinner but he's everything to you if you are. Amen? Do you, do you hear me on this this morning? Do you get what the Bible is saying? Jesus Christ is not good news to you if you're not a sinner. He has nothing to offer you if you're not willing to be called a sinner before him. And so the question stands this morning for all of us. Are you a sinner? When you put the measuring stick up against yourself, do you measure the same as the rest of us? And if you do, if that's you this morning, friends, come to him in faith because you're the exact person that he came for. Worship team, you can come up. Um, Martin Luther has a quote. He says, May a merciful God preserve me from a Christian church in which everyone is good. He says, I want to be in a church of the faint-hearted, the failed, the feeble, and the ailing who believe in the forgiveness of sin. If I could just be honest for a moment, I want that exact same thing for myself. I want that exact same thing for Mercy Hill. I want that for my kids. I want that for my family. I want that for all of us. I want that for this community. But far more importantly, that's what God wants. God wants Christian churches that don't look at themselves and say, we're good. God wants Christian churches that look at themselves and they see a group of, of, of weary, faint-hearted, tired, feeble, weak, broken people stumbling forward day by day only by the grace of God who, who are willing to say, I'm a sinner saved by grace. 
and who preached the gospel message that Jesus Christ came to save sinners. And that starts with every single one of us here letting the word do its work on our hearts. Letting the word tear down our blind spots, revealing to us the truth about ourselves that we, that we so often don't believe and become numb to. Giving us, again, just a, a, a little taste of our sin. Not so that we would ever sit in it and wallow in the guilt and shame, but so that the sweetness of Christ would be made fresh to us over and over and over and over again. So that we would never get over the love of Christ and his grace to us on our behalf. Amen? Pray with me to that end, if you would, and then we'll, we'll close in song. Uh, Father, God, we're, we're just so thankful to you. God, we're so dependent on you. God, even in, in things that hurt us, God, we, we, all we have in life is, is complete trust and dependence and faith in you, Lord, that you have a purpose in all of it. God, some of us, all of us, at times need reminded of the, the reality of our sin. We need reminded of the reality that it's not just true of us in word and in thought, but God, in, in real action, God. We're, we're real sinners. We have a problem. And God, we need that so that we would understand, again, the grace of the gospel and your love to us in Christ. God, some of us here this morning, we may be overwhelmed by our sin. We may, we may not be able to get the taste of our sin in our mouth, Lord. Whatever it is, maybe it's, it's circumstances, maybe it's something every day that serves as a reminder to us of something that we did, and we just can't move past it. Again, Lord, we believe that your purpose in that would be to show us the true magnitude and grace of the gospel. And so, God, just help us to, help us to believe that. God, give us hearts that would, that would receive that. That in the midst of all of our own self-confidence and our, our own rationale and what makes sense to us and what we feel moment by moment, Lord, that we would be presented with the truth and the grace of your word, Lord, and that we would, that we would cling to it because it's all that we have. You know, we, thank, we thank you for not only what you've done, but what you're continuing to do to us, Lord, and in us. And Lord, we want to lean into that as much as we can. Help us, God, not in our strength, but in yours. Amen.